Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, Trade and U.S. Economics Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. In this episode, we talk to Jason Furman. He is now a professor at the Harvard Kennedy School of Government and a senior fellow at the Peterson Institute with Chad. For the first four years of the Obama administration from 2009, Jason was at the National Economic Council. Then, from 2013, he was head of President Obama's Council of Economic Advisors. So as loyal Trade Talks listeners will know by now, I was senior economist at the Council of Economic Advisors for President Obama during the second year of the administration from 2010 and 2011. And my job was to basically only think about trade. Today, we have with us somebody whose job in the Obama administration it was to think about all of the other economic issues as well. So welcome, Jason Furman. Thanks for having me. So if Chad's job was only to think about trade and your job was to think about the big picture, how did trade fit in? It wasn't an important part of the crisis. The crisis was something that was primarily domestic in the United States. It was something where the bulk of the tools for solving it were also going to be domestic, whether it was the financial system, aggregate demand through fiscal policy, what was going on independently in monetary policy. Although we did have in mind that increased U.S. exports could play a role because one of the ways the global economy adjusts is when one country is having a tougher time than other countries, um, the trade balance is part of what brings back a global equilibrium. Jason, tell us what the administration did when it was confronted with the crisis in in 2009, the the sort of first actions that it took when it came into office. The primary action was a large fiscal stimulus, the Recovery Act, maybe not quite as large as we would have wanted at the time or should have had in retrospect. Um, That mostly was domestic, but it did have things like um, domestic content requirements, a lot of that building on what was previous policy, building on what Congress was insisting on at the time. And then there was a whole financial rescue package, autos and housing would have been the three other major crisis areas. So just for listeners, those local content requirements essentially restricted the extra spending on certain projects to essentially be buying inputs that were American made. So there were American steel content requirements on some of the, I think it was water infrastructure projects. Yeah. I mean, many of those were longstanding rules. Buy American rules covering steel have been around for a while. But certainly, you know, as a political matter, a lot of Congress really wanted to make sure those were part of the law. I don't think any of us thought it was going to really greatly enhance its bang for the buck vis-a-vis the U.S. economy. So during the crisis, global trade fell fairly sharply. Did that make it onto your agenda? Was that a concern? Yeah, we were very aware of that. Global trade was falling you know, more quickly than it did in the Great Depression. And that was part of why we really did look at exports as one of the channels that could help the U.S. economy recover. We thought investment would be impaired. We thought consumption would be impaired because of overleveraged consumers. We hoped that the rest of the world was, on average, less affected by the crisis, and so that the export channel was going to potentially be a bigger one for the recovery than it had been in past crises. And when I came into the administration in the second year, I inherited a policy that had already been put forward by the president, the National Export Initiative, where the goal was going to be attempt to double exports within five years. We need to export more of our goods.
because the more products we make and sell to other countries, the more jobs we support right here in America. So, so tonight we set a new goal. We will double our exports over the next five years, an increase that will support two million jobs in America. Were you one of the architects of that plan? I was uh, certainly involved in the doubling exports. I was one of the people that tried to go through the math, make sure it was plausible. We did not factor in the Eurozone crisis in those calculations, so didn't hit the goal. But I thought that was a useful organizing principle to get all the different parts of government focused on what they could do to reduce barriers to our exporters. Some might say that you know the idea of doubling exports might be a slightly arbitrary target to hit. So what, what were the inputs that went into that target? It was just looking at what the growth rate of exports was at that moment, what it had been in the past, how quickly they'd grow even just to get back to the share of GDP they'd been. So largely this goal was a way of describing something we thought was a semi-reasonable trend that we would do a bit more to help us hit. It certainly wasn't a centrally planned economy. We're going to go out and assign export numbers to individual firms. Let's talk about what the Trump administration gets right about trade, if anything. I think the, the diagnosis of, the, of President Donald Trump's rise is that actually he put his finger on a real problem, which was that essentially people had welcomed trade liberalization with open arms and they'd forgotten the people who lost out from that trade liberalization. And, and so if you listen to him on the stump, his view seems to be that previous administrations were asleep on the wheel. They should have been thinking more about how to help those people. And his version is also you should have thought about raising trade barriers. What's your version of that story? First of all, President Obama also campaigned on declaring China a currency manipulator, renegotiating NAFTA, and getting tougher on trade. When he came into office, we did some things in that regard. For example, the Bush administration had never used the surge rules on Chinese exports. The Obama administration did. It used them on tires. And then we discovered that, you know what, might have been a surge of tires, but it turns out doing something about that surge of tires might actually make us worse off, um, not better off, because it raised prices for consumers at a very, very high cost. Um, per job saved. So there was an attempt to do somewhat more robust on trade. Um, but what I think the far more important response to all of those complaints about globalization was what was done domestically. And of those, far and away the most important um, was the Affordable Care Act, the largest expansion of the social safety net in 40 years. And if you just looked at trade-impact workers, obviously the ACA was for everyone, but if you just looked at trade-impacted workers, my guess is they get more from the ACA than they do from trade adjustment assistance or any of the specific programs um, delineated for them. What do you think of the president's assertion that trade deficits matter? I think that is mostly wrong most of the time, at least in the way this administration talks about it. Care to expand? Yeah, trade deficits are, first of all, primarily the result of domestic policy, a country that saves too little or invests a lot. If they get very large for the wrong reasons, for example, you're running a very large budget deficit, um, then I think it's a problem. But I don't think there's anything zero sum about it. And I think it has relatively little to do with trade policy. I think trade policy determines the volume of exports and imports, but they sort of rise and fall together. And the difference between them 
is your domestic policies, and there can be very good reasons for trade deficits, and there can be bad reasons. How do concerns about China's currency manipulation fit in with that? I think that is a very legitimate concern. Circa five or ten years ago, China's exchange rate really was undervalued. It really was manipulated to keep it in that position as they accumulated lots of reserves. But it's since appreciated by forty percent, and with that, China's current account surplus has fallen from ten percent of GDP to one point four percent of GDP. So I think that's a problem that has largely been solved. And this is their surplus with the world. Their surplus with the world. They still have a large surplus with the United States, but their overall surplus with the world has shrunk considerably. Yes, and if you had listed on the set of statements from the Trump administration any statement at bilateral trade deficits, there I would have said unqualifiedly that's just economic nonsense and not something any economist would focus on. In the case of China, in particular, they assemble a lot of stuff, so they get inputs from Korea, they sell it to us, and it shows up. As a trade deficit with China, not a trade deficit with Korea, for example. What about the idea that America opened up its markets to China too quickly? So there are a bunch of papers from some economists essentially finding that this China shock had a large and persistent effect on American workers. I think the China shock is the. Best empirical evidence to raise concerns about trade, but I don't think it has fundamentally changed the way I think about it for three reasons. One, it looks at part of the issue. It looks at our imports from China. It doesn't look at what was going on with U.S. exports to the rest of the world. And when you know, economist Bob Feinstrich studied that, it turned out that our exports were creating about as much labor demand as the China shock was reducing it. So that would be the first point. The second point is that was very much a moment in time. It was a massive economy entering the global economy on a massive scale of a type that I don't expect that we'd see again in the future. So we can debate that historical episode, but I wouldn't extrapolate it to the future. And then the third, it's important to understand most of China's rise was something because of their domestic economic reforms, because they were getting richer. We actually managed to, you know, get them to lower their tariffs quite a lot in order to enter the WTO. Their imports from the United States rose 886% over the course of that period. So I think that in many ways the WTO was the right way to handle the rise of China, get their tariffs down, get them playing by the rules. Give a mechanism, you know, to deal with them going forward. You know, we can talk more about that literature. I mean, I think Otter, Dorn, and Hansen find a large effect on manufacturing jobs, but the effect they find is still a tiny fraction of the many millions of jobs the U.S. economy loses every month and gains every month. The decline in the manufacturing share was larger in the 18 years before 2000, with China's entry to WTO, than it was in the 18 years since China's entry to the WTO. And if you look at local areas that have expanded their exports, you see a lot of job gains in those local areas. So trade cuts both ways. Do you think the Trump administration gets anything right with its approach to China? I think China certainly violates intellectual property. It has systematically worse treatment of foreign companies that want to invest in China, and I think those are legitimate issues. 
So if we agree the Trump administration has identified some concerns with China that need to be addressed, what's a better way of actually tackling these problems? You know, a lot of people ask, what would Obama do? Obama wasn't president in the year 2018. I think in some of these respects, China's behavior has gotten worse. And so you would have seen the administration dial up, even under President Obama, its emphasis on China and China trade. But I think what's most important is to, one, focus on the real issues, which are around investment, forced transfer of intellectual property and the like, rather than to focus on the trade deficit. Second of all, to do it in a multilateral way, for example, working with allies, bringing cases at the WTO. And third, the best way to get something done is to offer concessions that are good for yourself as well. And I think some of our restrictions on exports to China, some of the restrictions or lack of transparency on China investment in the United States, those are big priority issues for China. And they're ones that I actually think the American economy would be better off if we did some of what China wanted. Were these topics being negotiated with China when the Obama administration was in office? Yeah, we had a very, very active economic dialogue with China. I think part of why China made so much progress on the exchange rate with the 40% appreciation was because of a constant set of pressure from the United States. The biggest one we were working on was a bilateral investment treaty, and that was designed to create better treatment for American companies investing in China, and they wanted the same for their countries investing in the United States. Those negotiations certainly never came to completion. If they had, I certainly wouldn't want to be the one who had to convince two-thirds of the Senate to vote for that treaty. But I think that type of approach helped China make some progress in that regard, not as much as you know we would have liked. But these things take a while, and there's only so much leverage the United States has. You just mentioned that some in the Senate might have been reluctant to pass some kind of bilateral investment treaty with China. And I think that relates to two opposing views I've heard of the US-China relationship. One which sees it as a very adversarial zero-sum relationship, and another one which I think is getting drowned out at the moment that does see the positive sum benefits to such a kind of economic integration between the two economies. I think you've hinted where you fall between those two, but could you just explain where exactly you fall? So first of all, I'm more in that second school. I think the United States benefits enormously from the imports we get from China and enormously from the exports that we make to China, especially in areas like services. I also don't think that we have a choice. So to give two examples that we dealt with, One was the Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIB. The United States thought that it had enough leverage to basically stop that bank Turns out there's a lot of other countries that had different views about how they wanted to engage with China. They joined. We ended up um, isolated. So it wasn't something that we could particularly contain in retrospect or maybe even in prospect to have joined up in it, tried to insist on some higher um, governance standards and participate in it would have been better. That was a lesson we learned when it came to including the Chinese currency in the IMF's special drawing rights arrangement and in their basket. It was clear that it was going to happen. The United States could marginalize itself by opposing it, or it could join it and help to shape it. And there we we chose the latter course and I think chose correctly. 
So I think our economic relationship with China really can be positive some, first of all. But second of all, I don't think that isolating China is going to be a real viable economic policy option unless we can get the rest of the world on board with it. And I don't think we can. The analog for trade is outside of China and the United States. There's more than 5 billion consumers out there, and it's going to be hard to get those consumers and the companies and the workers that work in all those places not to be willing to engage with China just because the United States says that you shouldn't. Exactly. If we were to be able to succeed on the sum total of our trade complaints with China, you know, my guess, and I'm making this number up for the sake of argument, is that our GDP would be half of one-tenth of one percent higher. This isn't a major part of our economy that's majorly affected by this. A getting tough on China approach potentially jeopardizes a much larger part of our economy than that. So I think there's a risk reward that we're trying to achieve something that would be good, but not particularly great or transformational for the U.S. economy. We're trying to achieve it by risking something that is potentially much larger proportionally. Can you talk a little bit about some of the risks? What are the, the big ones that you see as this uh, spirals out of control? The biggest risk is, in the short run, is that American businesses are paying more for imports, which makes it harder for them to compete with businesses from other countries, and American consumers are made worse off. In the medium run, there's investment being delayed as firms try to understand their uncertainty. But potentially the biggest is in the long run, a reconfiguration of global supply chains towards more localism away from some of the global supply chains that I think really have you know, benefited everyone. I think if you were to go on Twitter and follow people who are exclusively focused on this trade stuff, you might come away with a very alarming impression of the prospects for the American economy. Could you put this all into some perspective? Yeah. For the United States, trade is about 13 percent of our economy. So anything we do can't be that great or that bad. When you go through the macroeconomic models that try to figure out the consequences, even of an all-out trade war, they're surprisingly small, like over a decade, less than a tenth of a percent a year on your growth rate. So I think everyone gets a little bit more excited about this than they should. That's not just trade, though. I think in every economic area, people on both sides of the issue tend to get more excited about that area. I always felt my job as an economic advisor was if something created $30 billion of the value for the U.S. economy, I should be for it. If it took $30 billion away from the U.S. economy, um, I should be against it. So I think here we're talking about taking money away from the U.S. economy. It'd be bad. It's worth being opposed to that. But I wouldn't think the sky is falling. Supposing you were still sitting at the Council of Economic Advisors and for some strange reason the Obama administration was following the policies that the Trump administration is following. As an economist, how would you start to look out for the effects of this stuff? I would look, first of all, try to model what the direct effects were. Forget psychology, forget confidence and the like, figure out what those are. Second, I'd look at business investment because that is more dependent on expectations than something like consumer spending, and it might respond in advance of something happened. And the third thing is, you know, while I don't think markets are necessarily the world's most rational arbiters of economic policy, they have some wisdom. So I'd be trying to extract what we could from event study type analysis of how the market moved, you know, vis-a-vis -vis various trade statements. 
Was it a fool's errand to try and look at the trade data directly? I think it is. Five years from now, 10 years from now, we can look back at the trade data. But for now, take something like soybeans and the expectation that there's going to be Chinese tariffs on American soybeans. They buy a lot of soybeans in advance of that. So you see American soybean exports rise before they fall. So I think there's a lot of timing issues in the trade data that make that maybe even the hardest of all to assess what's going on in real time. So let's go back to trade policy under the Obama administration. Eventually, the administration did negotiate the Trans-Pacific Partnership and passed it in the fall of 2015. What was the strategy at that point in time to try to get it passed through Congress? The strategy was to explain the benefits of it. We explained those benefits primarily in terms of American exports. I think a certain amount of the benefits, maybe even a larger set, were in terms of imports. I fully trust that the political people knew which of those two was the right thing to emphasize politically. And, you know, all these trade talks have a strange thing, which is that you make concessions by lowering tariffs that are usually more bad for your own country than they are for other countries. So we love to point out the disproportionate reduction in trade barriers by countries like Japan and Vietnam. Um, it turns out when you did the macro analysis, those countries would benefited even more than the United States did because they were the ones making the larger concessions. So as somebody who was not involved in the administration in the later stages when the agreement was being negotiated, I didn't have the benefit of being able to see the texts that you have been able to see since it's now a public document. But when I look at the agreement now, you see a lot of really interesting things in there. There's chapters on state-owned enterprises and transparency and labor and environment and things like that becoming enforceable for the first time in one of these major agreements that you really didn't hear that being talked about during the public debate, that this was going to be an agreement that was going to be designed to address the down-the-road concerns that we would have with China on a lot of the issues that we're confronting today. Was that ever considered as a strategy to kind of explain that aspect of the agreement at all? We did half of what you said. We certainly emphasized the labor and environmental rules, the state-owned enterprises. We got you know, a number of environmental groups on board and talked about this as setting you know, a gold standard for trade agreements, to use one particular cabinet secretary's words. But we certainly didn't want to hold open the prospect publicly that we were trying to design an architecture that would be able to bring China in and create a constraint on China in the future, even though I think for a number of us, that was certainly in the back of our heads. Wouldn't it be great? We've set up all these rules. Now China would have to abide by them around state-owned enterprises and the like. I agree with you. I think that's a great argument for it. But any opening the door to you want even more trade with China wasn't a, wasn't a great topic of conversation. So Jason, as the chair of the Council of Economic Advisors, was there ever anything that caused you to roll your eyes when you had somebody like me in, in my job come to you and try to explain something about trade? You know, actually not. I'm very sympathetic with where trade economists are coming from on this issue. And if anything, feel a little bad for them because people have been trying to explain some of these issues for 200 years, have tried lots of different ways of doing it, and none of it has made a massive difference in the way that the public sees these issues. So I wish I had a better idea to offer. Certainly, I like talking about the benefits of imports, but then people tell me that's a politically idiotic thing to do when talking about trade policy. 
I do think trade economists can't just be about efficiency. They have to be about distribution, about what gains and losses in the economy are. But some sense that's an issue that is, as we talked about with the Affordable Care Act, is outside the purview of trade economics. It's not like a trade economist is going to design a brilliant health program. But a brilliant health program is probably the most important thing we could have to make people more comfortable with trade, although even then, probably not sufficient to make them fully comfortable with trade. And that is all for this week's episode of Trade Talks. If you liked it, then tell us and tell Jason. If you hated it, then you probably didn't make it this far in the podcast. Tell everyone you know about the podcast. And if you are the amazing kind of person who has a podcast of your own, tell all of your listeners about ours. And if you would like to get in touch, then on Twitter, I'm at at Samaya Keynes. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because just one ex-Obama CEA person wasn't enough. Okay, so wait, wait. You, you asked Jason what he rolled his eyes at when the trade economists came to him. So as a trade economist, what did you roll your eyes at when the non-trade people came to you? So to be clear, this wasn't Jason, but my favorite question was, Chad, how exactly are we going to double exports? Are there some regulations that we could cut or some taxes that we could slash? Or could we subsidize them? Right. And your response was? No. (laughs) I don't know how we're going to double exports.